I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. The question seems simple. How can family firms ensure long-term value creation? But as a new report, based on interviews with 123 Asia-based family firms and 14 private equity professionals shows, the answer may be more complicated. The report is titled The Institutionalization of Family Firms, and it covers a significant driver of the global economy. As the study notes, quote, as family firms account for 70% of GDP in the global economy and 60% of global employment, the importance of long-term value creation extends beyond individual families. It's among the main drivers of economic growth and business innovation, as well as livelihoods. To understand the study and the lessons it reveals, I spoke with the lead author, Claudia Zeisberger. Zeisberger is the Senior Affiliate Professor of Decision Sciences and Entrepreneurship and Family Enterprise at INSEAD, as well as founder and academic director of the school's private equity center. She's also co-author of two recently published books, Mastering Private Equity and the accompanying case studies, Private Equity in Action. Among the topics we discussed, the so-called proficiency gap around corporate governance and leadership, access to capital, organizational design, and growth capabilities. We also discussed the role private equity can play in helping institutionalize a family firm and unlock value. Claudia, thank you for your time. Great to talk with you again. Thanks very much, Chris. Pleasure to be back. Yeah, so uh, today I wanted to talk with you about uh, your report, The Institutionalization of Family Firms. And, and let's start, let's, let's make sure that everyone's talking about the same thing. Um, how do you define family firms? Family firms are enterprises that are controlled or run by family members. So we have basically um, uh, a clear measure that allows us to say whether it is a family firm or not. But we look primarily at the ownership side. Okay. And uh, tell me then about the survey, the research that you did. Um, uh, was, was there any size uh, of firms that you looked at? How did you conduct the survey? Um, and, and did you have a, a hypothesis going into it? So, yes, so that's interesting. We basically went into uh, this together with uh, our colleagues at uh, INSEAD's Emerging Markets Institute um, and supported by some of the uh, private equity firms that we also interviewed then in the context. Uh, but the initial premises was we wanted to find out what makes a family firm in Asia grow or not grow? What helps them to create value and create value remain a successful business over generations? And uh, we said uh, this would be an interesting question to ask across the world, but uh, we wanted to start with one region where we have seen incredible growth uh, in the, not just in the economy, but particularly in family-run businesses, and that was Asia. So we defined Asia all the way from the Middle East, uh, including Australia as well. Um, and uh, we said, what actually makes those firms uh, uh, grow? What are some of the obstacles they're, they're hitting as they're growing? And for those that are already at an advanced stage, when they look back, 
what do they wish they had had at certain critical points and uh, interjectures in their um, in their growth? So um, the the premises was that to grow a family firm, institutionalization is critical. So what we mean by that in simple terms is we you need to move away from a pure family managed uh, team. You need to bring in professional um, uh, professional help. You need to bring in you need to professionalize the whole institution. Yeah, and and that's of course the core of what the the research uh, shows, and and we'll get into the data on that and, and some of your findings. But what really interested me about that is it's almost like I. Do folks get caught up on on the terminology and on the language? Because when you when when one hears the term, uses the term family firm, um, the, the sense of a family almost by itself and by the nature of, of of what that means might hint against a more formalized concept of institutionalization. And yet, it's that that blending of more institutionalization and more formality and and rigor that you found drove greater growth and greater success. So just first, in terms of just the language that's used, how how did you find the family firms reacting to that, reacting to the sense of, uh, you know, institutionalization and and more formalities? Well, I have to say most of them knew exactly what we were talking about. So, and just again, back to, to, to be clear, I mean, we interviewed families all the way, family firms run by the first second, third generation, all the way to fifth generation and above of family firms. And obviously, depending on where the family was across this spectrum, we had uh, quite different um, reactions to the questions we were putting towards them. Um, And I would argue the further along the family was, the better an understanding they had in terms of what we were talking about when we said institutionalization. So clearly they had realized that um, that they had hit at one point certain roadblocks and had to basically overcome that by bringing in additional talent, a talent that could not be found within the family members. So why does so let's talk about it and and what you found particularly from the firms that uh were maybe further along on that time scale and the generation scale um why does institutionalization matter for family firms uh in Asia what 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 are some of the the reasons or the ways that that helped them uh outperform or certainly perform maybe better than uh, uh the the firms that don't have the institutionalization so doing business in Asia, and I think that probably applies to uh, other emerging markets too, is uh, complicated. It is, um, it is less certain. You have uh, potentially more political risk. Um, there are certain areas that would be more corruption. There may be less regulation. You may have issues just simply with the rule of law. So, for example, a simple example, bankruptcy laws or just simple courts. Uh, institutions to go to if and when when things don't go um, as they were planned. So uh, you may even say that uh, um, as, an, as an economy, we have less digitization here. So um, it is really a more complicated business environment. 
And just as a side comment, we hear I hear that as well from the private equity firms. So Asia is different different from Europe or the United States in terms of doing business. Um, then the institutionalization matters because in such a difficult business environment, you need to basically counteract that with more governance within your institution. So nevertheless, when you're a young business, when you are in first or second generation, um, very often what we found that uh, the corporate governance uh, framework is very much underdeveloped. So you may have uh, boards that are not as uh, functional. You may have very much concentrated decision-making or, as we call it, group think uh, in boards that are not as diversified. There may be uh, less process, uh, less data-driven decision-making, uh, more, intuit- more intuition, more intuitive decision-making. And um, the economic priorities at times may uh, take a backseat to the priorities of the family. So that basically kind of all ties it together with institutionalization. So then comes the next step, and that's something that's very close to the heart of any external investor, private equity or uh, uh, strategic, would be professionalization. So um, it matters particularly that uh, the leadership is professional, that you have the right talent in, uh, in place and that um, the, the family members that are involved are involved in the right area of the business where they add the most value. And that very often then very quickly, especially in Asia, um, hits the, the very, very thin talent pool that we have here. So I hear that quite regularly that we are looking for X, Y, Z to, to improve our company structure, but it is really, really difficult to find those people. So that is why institutionalization really matters, to put processes in place to overcome those yeah, constraints that one has in doing business in Asia. And so a couple questions coming to mind. First, in in terms of for a family firm and the analysis on when or or at what stage do I really am I ready for institutionalization and that level of professionalism? I've gotten to a certain point through the, the you know the means that I've done it, you know, working together as a close knit family, however it is that I've done it. And how, how do they know? Is it is it time based? Is it is it size based? Uh, assets under management? How, how do how should family firms think about when? They should know, be looking in the mirror and knowing, uh, I, I better I better think about uh, changing things around. Hmm. Um, it's a very good question. And uh, from what we saw, it's either driven by external or internal developments. So on the external side, it may very much be very rapid growth, very rapid expansion, demand for certain products and services that uh, the business is offering that just cannot be fulfilled by the existing infrastructure. So very often the business may have grown very, very fast, may have expanded very, very fast, but the foundations are not uh, keeping pace, so are not holding up with it. And that's when then things start to you know, run not as smooth as they should. So the wheels need some some external grease. So the internal part is very much uh, generational uh, handovers. So at the point when the next generation comes in, and this may be the second, third or fourth, 
that's when very often the conversations are being raised. Are we still doing, are we still running the business? Is our infrastructure still doing justice to the business as it stands? Or has have our foundations uh, become uh, not solid enough, not rigorous enough in, uh, uh, in comparison to the size of the business? So hand over to the next generation or just simply the next generation coming in, reaching the age where they can be involved in the business side, uh, very often does bring the... Um, the, the, the topic of uh, professionalization and institutionalization to the uh, to the table. Yeah, I was really struck by uh, a quote of yours, pull quote of yours in the report that over 30% of Asia's family firms will go through a generational change in the coming five years. Not always is the next generation able or willing to step into the shoes of their elders. Uh, that's a fairly critical evaluation, I, I would think. Um, that, um. Yeah, it, it, it is, but, uh, but we also, you gotta see it in context. So let me give you an example. And I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of, let's say five students that I had over the last four years in my class. And let's put them all together into one student. So, um, uh, those are MBAs. They're, um, 29, 30 years old, had five years job experience, now coming and doing their MBA. And obviously coming from a family business in Asia, very much the parents are expecting that uh, young graduate now with a, with a newly minted MBA under its belt to join the family firm. So here's conversations that I then quite regularly have. Um, I'm coming from a family business. I went to, uh, I did my undergrad overseas in the UK, for example. I then went on to work with a, uh, a multinational in, in Paris, in the US. Um, I've come, for example, one example is um, from a design background, and uh, I worked with Hermes and some of the, uh, the fashion designers in, uh, in Paris. I speak French, English, and, but obviously my, my background is Chinese. My father runs a very profitable business, which is a, su a supplier to Philips. So there's no brand or anything involved, but it's very profitable. But it is in a what China would call third or fourth tier city. So I'm the only child. Um, I'm clearly expected to go back to that business. And it's just not what I'm interested in. So and then very often I get the conversation afterwards. Do you think private equity would be interested in having a conversation with my father and uh, with that business? Um, which then obviously is, uh, becomes an interesting conversation in terms of deal flow for some of the private equity funds here in Asia. But I think you have to understand that a lot of the businesses here are very profitable, but they're just not very, yeah, call it glamorous potentially. They're not uh, aspirational for uh, for the young people. If you are basically a, you're a young computer scientist, you'd rather go and work in Silicon Valley or in Boston with one of the startups. You may want to go to Berlin and uh, look into tech fashion, create your own app, start your own business. You really don't want to go home and run your manufacturing business of your family in India, in Thailand or in China. 
So that's the context. That's the context. And apparently, in addition to being a global expert on private equity, you are also required to be an expert in psychotherapy. So that's that's excellent. I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure that, that that part of your practice must be growing. That's uh, it, it, I'm I'm very clear about it. I'm very clear about <laughs> what I understand, what I don't understand, and right. I tell my student that as well. But I'm obviously quite happy to to yeah. to to connect them with fam, with private equity firms for a conversation. Yes. So if that is something, but I I always point out. I said, guys, this is this does not um, this does not. Uh, reduce the importance of the conversation you must have with your family because that is clearly step one. Um, that they are, have a clear understanding that it's, you don't have the ambition to come back to the business. And very often, I mean, you were talking, so China regularly conversations around one sibling only available. But then other parts of Asia, there may be three, four, five siblings, uh, available. And then comes the conversation, I'm supposed to run the business, but I really don't want to. My brothers may not want to do that either. So it, it is quite complicated. Yes, the transition planning. Yeah, complicated and, and interesting. I mean, that's part of what makes it, uh, you know, there, there are so many different levels and dynamics and uh, makes it more than just a, perhaps more than just a straightforward um, business transaction. Let's go to another aspect of your report and, and the findings um, and the proficiency gap between what you call champions um, versus ascendants. So first of all, help me with the definition on champions and ascendants. And then what do you mean by the proficiency gap? So um, in terms of data, when we started to uh, approach families, we expected to have maybe 50 to 80 uh, work with us. In the end, we had uh, over 120 that participated in the survey, which was uh, which we're very, very grateful for that they spent the time with us. Now, obviously, to make the findings somehow digestible for, for our readership, uh, we had to somehow uh, group the data. And what we decided uh, is to uh, define the, um, the champions as those that are in the fourth generation or beyond. So fourth, fifth, and sixth generation. And the uh, ascendants are family firms run by first, second, or third generation family firms. And what's the proficiency gap? So then basically we have, uh, we use, uh, the, the survey framework uses very distinct attributes and, uh, measures that reach from family ownership and succession, uh, intangible assets, all the way to access to capital, corporate governance and leadership, growth capabilities and organizational design. So those are kind of the tests that we, uh, put the data set to. And we then discovered that there was quite a difference between uh, the family firms in the group of the ascendants and the champions. So just one very, very simple example, looking at board composition, something that's very much top of the mind of uh, families, especially as they go through generational transitions. Um, which we found actually corporate governance and leadership was in general a uh, very, very large driver of um, this pro proficiency gap. So 55% of, of our champions uh, had a professional board, meaning 
uh, board that was diverse, uh, had uh, a certain number of independent directors, and in general was structured in a way that you would expect a board uh, to operate. So, for example, it had subcommittees that would meet on a regular basis and so on and so forth. So 55% of our champions had a professional board versus 26% of our ascendants. So that's a pretty significant gap. And did firms... To what extent did family firms have outside help in terms of this institutionalization and professionalization, understanding how to you know, integrate proper co- uh, corporate governance aspects, how to you know have the uh, properly functioning board, but also y- these other points that you raise uh, that that drive the proficiency gap, the the access to capital, the organizational design, the growth capabilities. Did the did the firms that had those things were they disproportionately working with? private equity firms or were they somehow were so were, were they somehow getting there on their own so we had basically we had both so we had families that had clearly gotten to a very very high level of institutionalization on their own um, and we we have basically some case studies at the uh, at the end where we share some of their uh, the obstacles that they met and how they overcame them. Nevertheless, private equity played a very important role in the process as well. So quite a few firms brought private equity um, private equity owners or private equity shareholders, and I should say, um, most of the time as minority investors. I should be clear about that as well. So we're talking growth equity rather than buyouts. And they brought them in with a very clear intent to help them to professionalize the business. So professionalize the business was reason number one, to bring private equity firms in. And the second one was then unlocking growth. So help us to get to the next level, whatever that may have meant in the business. And the third one was the management of succession. Help us in thinking through succession planning at this point in that order. And you spoke with, uh, it was 14 private equity firms. Is, is that right? That's right. Yep. Yes. And we, we, chose, we chose those private equity firms. So these were not randomly selected. We chose them because we were very clearly aware that those were firms that had worked with family firms that were consciously reaching out, making an effort to getting close to those family firms. So. And how did their insights compare to what you heard from the family firms? Was, was everybody talking about the same elephant or did you hear problems described differently or challenges described differently uh, from, let's say, the PE side than you were hearing them from the, the family firm side? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the PE partners, uh, language played a very large role, so it's spot on. So very often, um, especially as a minority investor, um, they felt they had to be very, very clear about their plans when approaching the family firms about what they would do post-investment. Um, they had to be very clear about their value creation plans, what would basically drive the, the development. They also had to be very clear to explain that their involvement in the business by the nature of the business model of private equity, would be only temporary. So a conversation had to be had on future exits. What would those exits look like? How would uh, how would the family firm achieve that exit? Did it mean 
working towards an IPO, a public listing, which then would make the exit of the private equity uh, shareholder obviously significantly easier? Or did it mean working towards a um, the involvement of a strategic, which is a bit more complicated as strategics normally are not interested in minority stakes. So it would have required of the family to uh, release uh, potentially more of their equity. Of the equity holdings. Yep. And when you spoke with the private equity firms, did you was there a range of approaches? Did did, did firm A approach or, or PE firm A approach uh, their interaction and the ways that they helped uh, family firms institutionalize? Were, you know differently than firm B, C, D, or E? Did or you know was there a a spectrum or did everyone kind of have? the same general approach. And then within that, there might be differences in capability and how well they do at it, but, but generally the same blueprint. Um, the, the private equity firms obviously are quite different. And um, absolutely, I mean, especially with the specialization that we're seeing now across the industry, um, the firms were all very, very clear what they can do for a family business and what they rather not do. So they were from the get-go very clear uh, who they wanted to approach and who they wanted to work with and in what capacity. Um, in general, they clearly uh, had, uh, I would say, a the broader framework was similar across the private equity firms. Um, so, for example, it was very clearly focused on a what we call active ownership an active ownership model, which basically then very quickly focused on um, improving the the governance structure in the organizations, which makes perfect sense. I mean, just uh, from the for the for the point of uh, yeah, improving or enabling communication and uh, the prof- professionali- professionalization of the uh, of the business as well, and then very quickly bringing very clear measures in. So um, here is our plan. These are the KPIs that we that uh, that we need to drive. And what do we what can we use to clearly monitor whether we are in line with those uh, uh, with those ambitions, whether we are on track or whether we're falling behind. Um, and then to bring this back to to the board to have conversations that that basically allow you then to say, OK, what can we do to get back on track if we're falling behind? So it was very, very clear that the active ownership uh, model clearly had to was clearly connected to the value creation at the end. What's the feedback been to your report, both on the family firm side and on the PE side? Well, um, you, you're getting a sneak preview. So we're launching it officially uh, on Monday uh, next week. But we've uh, shared it, obviously, with uh, our partners, with also with all the families that uh, contributed to the research. And the feedback has been fantastic, especially from some of the, uh, the family organization like FBN and uh, YPO um, that uh, wanted to have a... Um, an, an event to present the findings of the of the research, but also to um, to give the families uh, a chance to to question some of the findings, because clearly the way we wrote it, um, we wanted families, whether they participated in the study or not, uh, ultimately to read through the report and find themselves in there. 
So to to give them basically a tool that would allow them to say, yes, I mean, that's that's kind of how we are. And then look at some of the case studies and some of the suggestions that came out of the conversation with our private equity funds and potentially um, have some see, find some suggestions, find some ideas on how they can ensure that the business will continue to thrive in the future. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, the firms are very grateful for those insights, uh, the ones that participated in and the ones that uh, uh, didn't, because you know, to the extent that any of us are uh, willing and able to uh, look inside ourselves and, and have you know, straightforward conversations with ourselves, um, you know, they, they might uh, see some things that they're doing well, I would hope, and maybe identifying some things yeah. that they wish that they could you know, recognize that they ought to be doing better. And uh, I'm sure your insights were very, very useful. So um, to, to close out, uh, Claudia, um, you know you know that everyone's uh, ha- always happy with uh, what has been done, but that's never enough. People want to know what's next. So what, what, what's next? Do you go deeper into this, uh, maybe within that region? You mentioned earlier, of course, that you're uh, you know, going to perhaps look at um, some other regions and, and maybe be able to draw out some cultural differences if they exist. Um, what's next for you in terms of uh, this area? So next will be the um, uh, the rollout to other regions, very clearly. Um, and uh, whilst we had originally planned to uh, do Europe next, um, we have actually quite a lot of interest from the um, from Latin America, so um, this may very well be our next region where we do a similar study and then compare the findings with uh, Latin America with the findings we've had from Asia. Yeah, well, very very uh, interesting, and we'll and we'll wait for that. Any any how how long does that does that take? How how long did this report? take you to do and how, how long would something like that take uh this report took us a solid six months yeah to yeah. uh to create but partly also because we we had significantly more feedback more involvement of the families because you'll appreciate uh you're asking families to um spend a significant amount of time to go through the survey and answer those questions and whilst we had we felt we had a good relationship with those families since we've worked with them uh, over the years we were still surprised how many were willing to make the time and sit down which obviously meant we had a significantly more data to analyze which obviously is fantastic uh for an academic institution well, excellent. Thank you. Um, thank you for this. I, of course, hope that there are other things very soon for us to talk about. But if not, at the very least, um, I know that, uh, you know, I'll be looking forward to, uh, you know, six if, six-ish months. Maybe we'll try to get you to, you know, even speed things up and uh, um, have you come back and talk about uh, what you learned in LATAM and, uh, and, and comparisons between, or if that is the region that you end up deciding to go to, um, and, and any comparisons. But uh, um, anyhow, thank you. Thank you for your time and, and your insights on uh, this fascinating study. Super. Thanks very much, Chris.